Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Thanks, worship team. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. If you need a Bible, you can grab a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 966 in that Bible. And as we are going there, I want to show you a clip from a movie called The Star, which I'm sure many of you have seen. If you have kids, it's the Christmas story. It was a couple of years ago, uh, came out a new cartoon that unpacked the Jesus story. And so here is a little bit of the nativity scene of the, story, of the star. Take a look. It's a cute movie. We're seeing it's on Netflix right now. And as we move through Christmas, we move through Advent. We have the candles here, which are slowly counting down to Christmas Eve, reminding us of what we are celebrating. And we are in a little mini-series for December that we did a couple of years ago as well, called Christ in the Carols, where we take a Christmas carol, a traditional carol, and we let it be the sort of teaching vehicle for us. We walk through the words of the carol and let it uh, point us to Scripture and point us to the Jesus story that we are unpacking at Christmas time. And so let's take a look at our text today. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and we are starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So we met the shepherds last week in our text, and we get to see the wise men here. And it has often been pointed out and unpacked uh, that there is a decent chance that the wise men weren't there that night that this all happened. That the text, if you keep reading the story, would seem to suggest that uh, they saw the star a couple of years ahead of when they show up on the scene. And so Jesus might have been a toddler when they showed up. And that even that is not exactly precise. And so it has certainly become part of church tradition that the wise men are there at the nativity scene. I'm okay with that. We are going to go with that for the sake of our series and for the sake of today. But today we're we're going to walk through the hymn, O Holy Night, uh, which we sang already this morning and which we'll sing again before we come to the end. You guys did an awesome job on that, by the way. Um, beautiful song, one of my favorites, one of the great Christmas carols, in my opinion. Uh, one of the great ways to tell the story of Jesus and the story of the gospel. It was written in 1847 by Adolphe Adam. It was written, as many of these songs were, initially as a poem. And as the poem became popular, someone said, hey, let's set it to music, and then we can sing that poem in church. And so it has 
has become a classic Christian song that we sing and we celebrate at Christmas time. And so we're going to walk through the lyrics of this song. We're going to see the scripture and the theology behind the lyrics, and we're going to let it teach us and point us to God's word today. So, oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Just a little bit of poetry to kind of get us going, setting the scene for what we are celebrating. We don't really actually know for sure when Jesus was born, because uh, we sang one song this morning that said, Oh, Holy Night, and we sang a different one that said, Born This Happy Morning. And so we don't actually know. Uh, the tradition of the night has come from the story we looked at last week, that the shepherds were in their fields at night. And because the wise men also saw a star, which only shows up at night, it's become part of our traditional understanding that Jesus was born at nighttime. And the word holy, as we have often mentioned here at Meadowbrook, means to be set apart. It means to be different. Uh, specifically in a religious context, it means to be set apart for God or to be godly. And so when it talks about O Holy Night, it's saying this is a night that is different. This is a birth that is different. This is a night like no other night. This is a birth like no other birth. This is an event like no other event. God is doing something unique and incredible and divine. God is holy. His son is holy. This birth is holy. This birthday or birth evening, this night is holy. It is different. It is set apart. God is doing something that has never happened before. It makes the night holy. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. Pining means to long, uh, to wait, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That all of the world and all of the people of the world and all of creation uh, are, are not as they are supposed to be. That we are not the way God originally created us to be. That we sinned, and as we sinned, we reap the consequences of that sin. We talked last week about how in our sin, we have walked away from God. As we have walked away from God, we reap the consequences of walking away from God. And at the very beginning, Adam and Eve, who were the first ones to walk away from God, uh, God proclaimed what we typically call the curse over them, the consequence of sin. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, and the word says, cursed is the ground because of you, because of humanity. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And there's more to it than that. That's just one section of it. But as sin comes into the world, uh, there's consequences for men and women. There is fracturing in that relationship. And there's consequences for the ground, for literally, for creation. And there's consequences at the end there where no longer are we eternal anymore. We were created to be eternal. But God says, sin can't last forever. I can't allow sin to be eternal. So now you will return to the dust. That is the greatest consequence of our sin. And so the whole world is under this curse. The whole world is under this consequence. All of creation is groaning, Scripture says, just under the weight of the, the bondage and the consequence of sin in this world. And so uh, long lay the world in sin and error, pining in its sinfulness, the world for thousands of years was waiting for salvation, was th for thousands of years, was waiting for an answer till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. John 3.16, probably the most famous scripture. This is it in the King James. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The soul feels its worth. Our soul feels its worth as Jesus comes to earth 
because the value of something is demonstrated by the price that someone is willing to pay for it. We've all decided diamonds are super valuable and we're willing to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for diamonds. Diamonds are not actually that rare or that precious, but we have decided that they are as a culture. And so we will pay that. We have determined that's how valuable they are. The value of something is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay for it. We have decided as a culture that a three bedroom house in our community is worth X amount of dollars. That's the value of it because we're willing to pay that. And so when it comes to our soul, which was under the weight of all of that sin and bondage and pain, our soul that was separated from God, our soul that was doomed to an eternity without him, Jesus enters into the story out of his great love and is willing to lay down his life to save us from all of that. The soul feels its worth by the price that God was willing to pay in order to bring us back to him. That's how important we were to him. That's how big that love is. How do we know we are loved by God? God demonstrates his own great love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love for us at the cross. He doesn't just say, I love you. He shows us by being willing to die for us. And as Jesus enters the world at Christmas time, the soul feels its worth. We realize, wow, we are loved by God. And it's so easy to say, well, God doesn't know what I, I did and God doesn't know what I'm struggling with. Doesn't matter, you are loved by God. You don't know what I did yesterday, Chris. I don't, but you are loved by God. I know that for sure. And I know that because he came and I know that because he was willing to die for you. I know that as a fact. You are loved by God more than you can possibly imagine. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was, I pray that you would have the power to grasp how wide and high and deep and long is the love of God that is shown to you in Christ. I pray that you are able to just get a glimpse of how loved you really are. Because if you can really get deeply rooted and established in that love, your whole life is going to be different. You're going to live your life differently. You're going to make different choices. You're going to see yourself differently. You're going to see him differently to understand how loved you are by God. The soul feels its worth. The soul finally understands how much God loves us by the fact that Jesus came and lived and died for us. We see that now. It has been shown to us, not just written about, not just taught. It has been demonstrated to us. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's just good lyric writing right there. The thrill of hope. And hope is the expectation. Hope is not just faith. Faith is trust. Faith is where I say, I trust God. I'm trusting him for my salvation. I trust his word is true. I trust all of those things. But you can have faith without hope. Because you can trust in all those things, but not really expect that anything is going to change or anything's going to happen. Hope is the expectation that God is going to move. Hope is the expectation that the prayer is going to be answered. Hope is the expectation that the promise is going to be fulfilled. Hope is the expectation that God has written his word and he will stand by his word. It's an expectation that things are going to get better. It's an expectation that that longing will be fulfilled. It's an expectation that the thing I am crying out for and waiting for will come to pass. The scripture says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Sometimes we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait. And as we wait, we start to get a little cynical. We start to get a little bitter. We start to get a little frustrated. We lose that expectation. We lose that hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. 
And our job is to hold on to hope. Our job is to stir hope in one another and build up hope in one another. Our job is to be a hopeful people. The people of God are a hopeful people. We have expectation that he does hear an answer. We have expectation that the word will be fulfilled. We have expectation that he is returning. We have expectation of these things. Not just, well, maybe. Not just, oh, I hope so. Because it's so easy to make hope actually a lack of faith word. God going to answer that prayer? I hope so. Well, that doesn't sound like expectation. That doesn't sound like you're pressing in. That doesn't sound like you're running after him. That doesn't sound like you are digging into prayer and digging into the word and, and fasting and praying and seeking. There's an expectation that the Lord rewards those who diligently seek him. Diligently seek him, the word of God says. Those who press in, those who persevere, those who don't give up, those who don't stop. The thrill of hope as Jesus comes, it's such a great line. That light is coming into the world. In a world full of darkness, light has entered. True light that gives light to everyone has entered into the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's a beautiful line in a beautiful song that we are reminded of everything that God has promised, every word, every scripture, every promise in Christ, they are yes and amen. In Jesus, it is the fulfillment of everything. So fall on your knees, O oh, hear the angel voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night when Christ was born. Uh, we touched on the angel story last week, and again, that's just some beautiful lyric writing, some beautiful poetry, uh, that the shepherds got to see this incredible thing where heaven explodes in worship before their very eyes. And so uh, we are invited to, by faith, by imagination, by uh, the Spirit of God, by the memory of the Word of God, to enter into that moment, to get to, to imagine that, to experience that. Um, there's something about the line, and part of it's just the way musically it was written. It sounds like angel voices when we sing that line. There's something about the chords that were chosen and the, the melody of it. Um, but we remember that the angels came and they sang and they proclaimed that Jesus is alive. Moving into verse 2, led by the light of faith serenely beaming, by, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. This idea of faith, which is so uh, consistent throughout all of Scripture, we're invited into the story in these lines specifically, uh, that we come to the cradle by faith, by, by our imagination. We get to engage in the Christmas story in that way, led by the light of faith. And the scripture says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no one would boast. By faith we come to know Jesus. And you don't generate your own faith. Even that is the gift of God. We come to understand Jesus as he takes the veil away, as he opens up the eyes of our understanding. If there's people in our lives who don't know him, getting frustrated with them is a fruitless, unbiblical exercise. Because Jesus has to reveal himself to them. It should inspire us to pray and to fast and to press into God. By faith we have come. It is a God-initiated thing. So if you can put this whole story together, we're the ones who screwed up. We're the ones who rebelled against him. We're the ones who went our own way. We're the ones who said, I don't need you. We are the ones in rebellion. And God said, I love them so much that I will make the solution happen. Even though they are the ones who walked away, I will initiate the solution because I love them. And God came after us. So nothing in our salvation, it's not even that, oh, I saw Jesus and I, I believed and therefore I contribute my faith to this thing. No, even the faith comes as a gift of God. None of it is by our efforts. It all comes from him. 
He saw the problem and he solves the problem for us. He's worthy of worship for that reason alone. And so by faith, by faith, by faith, we come to know him. I don't earn my standing with him. I don't earn anything with him. By faith I come, by trust. I put my trust in him. And as I put my trust in him, I am saved. So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here came the wise men from Orient land. And it's one of the most interesting parts of the Christmas story, which we read today, is that they too came by faith. By faith, we come to the cradle. By the light of that faith, we come and encounter Jesus. By faith, they left where they were and started following a star. And what's fascinating about this story, we don't know a ton biblically about who these people were. In our text, it's the Magi. Uh, traditionally, they've been called the wise men. But we don't really know much about them other than uh, they were, they seem to be sort of pagan astrologers. They're looking to the stars, obviously. They're interested in that. And what's fascinating about it is God's word clearly says, don't look to the stars for signs. Don't look to the heavenly bodies. That's, that's a pagan practice. That is something that you're not to do. You're to look to the Lord. You're to look to scripture. That's what you're to do. And so where the Bible says you don't look to, to the stars, that's the command given to God's people. Uh, these are, are not God's people yet. And yet, because they are looking to the stars, because that is part of their, their pagan philosophy and worldview, God meets them where they're at. God comes to where they are and says, well, these guys are looking to the stars, so I'm going to use that in order to point them to Jesus. And so he uses a sign in the heaven, something he specifically says he doesn't want his people to do, but there's grace for these ones because they don't know that. They don't have God's law. They don't understand it. So God condescends. I don't mean that in terms of looking down on them. I mean in terms of the literal meaning of the word. He lowers himself to where they're at in order to reach them and reveal himself to them and point them to Jesus. And they have enough faith to go on a, on a journey. And we don't know where they are from. The, the Orient land is in there. There's a, a carol as well, We Three Kings of Orient. Uh, that's an old-fashioned word that we used to use to describe kind of the, the Southeast Asia, China, that area. Uh, the Bible doesn't say they were from there specifically. It just says they were from the east. Somewhere along the way, people said, well, they must have meant the Far East. And so they just decided that's where they came from. Uh, they could have been from 10 miles east. We don't actually know. We know that they came on a journey, and it sounds like they've been journeying a while. So that's probably where the idea came that they've come from quite a long ways away. But they have come by faith. We approach Jesus by faith. They saw the star, and by faith, they began to follow it. And, and they seem very confident as they come into Bethlehem of exactly who it is that they are looking for. And that's something only God could have revealed to them. That they come saying, where is the king of the Jews? Where is this one who has been born? We have come, and they bring gifts to honor him, to worship him. So they have a, an understanding of what it is that they are walking into. Moving on, the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials born to be our friend. King of Kings is one of the great and glorious names given to Jesus in the book of Revelation, that as Jesus is uh, appearing to return for, for good, to finally defeat the devil forever and completely establish his kingdom on earth, in Revelations 19, it says the name that will be written across him is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in that moment, we see Jesus in all of his glory and in all of his majesty. And whatever great, amazing human king you can imagine, Jesus is king over that. And whatever great and, and, and maybe powerful spiritual being or Lord is out there, Jesus is Lord above that. King above all kings and Lord above all lords. It is one of the greatest names he has given in all of scripture. 
And the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger. This is not king up on a throne. This is not a king in the glories of heaven. This is a king who left all of that and came to the earth in the most upside-down way possible. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger, came the most humble possible way. Kings, princes, princesses are typically born in palaces. They are typically born to luxury. They are typically born to power. They are typically born to fame and prestige. And Jesus, king of kings, comes with none of those things. He comes with the opposite of those things. He comes in poverty. He comes in humility. He comes in lowliness. He comes in the most unexpected ways. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger. In all our trials, born to be our friend. How many of you are friends with a king? Who's buddy-buddy with Queen Elizabeth? Right, like that's not normal. That's not a normal connection there. But when Jesus was wrapping up with his disciples in John's gospel, John 15, 15, Jesus says, I call you friends. He says, I don't call you servants anymore. I don't call you slaves because slaves and servants don't have any idea what their master's up to. I call you friends because there's an intimacy here. I've been telling you what's going on and the Holy Spirit's about to come and he's going to tell you what's going on. You're not just going to be blindly following orders. We're bringing you in. We're going to talk to you. We're going to reveal ourselves to you. There's a level of intimacy that you're going to have that goes so far beyond servant and slave. And it's not that we're not literally not servants of God, uh, and we're slaves to righteousness. We'll get to that in a second. But Jesus is unpacking a new level of what this relationship's going to look like. We serve God, but we serve from this place of intimacy, and we are also called child of God. Uh, we are called many things in Scripture. But Jesus says, hey, friend, friend. And on the one hand, we have King of Kings, the highest possible name. And on the other hand, we have, hey, buddy, and it's easy for us to lean one way or the other, right? Some people lean so much towards the majesty of God that they miss some of that intimacy or friendship. Some people do the opposite. They are so sort of intimate and, and close and love that side of God that they can miss the majesty and the holiness of God. So we, our job as Christians is to hold these things in balance and wrestle through them and understand it's not one or the other. It is both together. He is both king of kings and intimate friend. He is both of those things together. He reveals himself to us as both of those things. He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bend. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin that it's such a shift in how any humanity, any uh, branch of humanity has looked at God or the gods or whatever their, their uh, theological or spiritual worldview across this world, that God or gods or the gods are typically on another spiritual plane. They are far away. They are glorious. You don't know what they're thinking all the time. They can be arbitrary. Like if you ever read the stories of the Greek gods or the Roman gods, I am so glad we don't live under that because there's like 87 of them and they're all rivals with each other. And so if you try to please this God, this God gets mad and smites you with something. And then you try to make that God happy and you make those gods jealous. And uh, the gods just sound an awful lot like us. It's just a mess. They're all having affairs with each other. Like, it's just weird. And, and even then they're inaccessible. Like they're, you, can't, you can't really know them. You, you know them when they smite you with something. Uh, that's when you see them at work in your life. 
And we have this king, we have this king of kings, we have this high priest who is different than that. He's not just in the, the glories of heaven. He's not just on a cloud in heaven. He is not just uh, in the majesty and the glory of the divinity of everything that he is, but he has come down among us and he has walked life with us. He has experienced everything that we've experienced. He has been tempted by sin. He has been hungry. He has been lonely. He has felt pain. He has felt betrayal. He has carried it in his body. He has carried it in his heart. That there is nothing that you are experiencing in this life that he has not personally experienced. It's not just the, hey, I, I kind of can guess how you feel. It's no, he's felt it. He has been through it with us. He has walked a mile in our shoes. He, he literally has walked the human existence out. And he has said, I, I will do this with you. I, you are not alone in this. And so if you're carrying pain in your body, boy, does he know what that feels like. If you have felt abandoned, if you have felt betrayed, if you have felt lied about, if you have felt slandered, man, does he know personally what that feels like. If you have felt the sting of poverty or, or the sting of, of feeling like God is far away, he has felt what that feels like. We have one who knows our need. He doesn't just know it because he's God and he knows everything. He knows it because he's lived it out. Our Savior has lived this out. And never again can we ever say, well, God doesn't understand. He's this great, powerful, majestic, spiritual being. How could he possibly understand? In Jesus, he fully understands our need because he has walked it with us. He has gone through it with us. So behold your king before him, lowly bend. And this is part of what a lot of Christmas teaching becomes, is that our response is to worship. That is the only response, really. It is to worship. It is to acknowledge him as king. It is to acknowledge him as Lord. It is to bend down, to bow down, to lie down in worship before him and exalt him as the king that he is. All right, almost done. Moving into the last verse. This is the best one. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Jesus says in John's gospel, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And, and it's not literally a new, new commandment. In the Old Testament, the commandment is in there that we love one another and we take care of one another. That's there. Uh, Jesus shifts the emphasis a little bit where he says, okay, this is actually the most important thing that we do. As I have loved you, you love one another. Well, how has he loved us? Well, he's loved us with a tremendous amount of grace, a tremendous amount of patience, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of compassion, a lot of self-sacrifice, a lot of putting others ahead of themselves. That's how he's loved us. And so our job is the way he has loved us is the same love that we are to give away. It's actually hypocritical for us not to. To say, I'm going to take all that grace and all that forgiveness and all that patience and all that compassion and everything that he's poured into me, but I'm not going to give that to you. I'm going to hold you to a very different standard. We can't. The way he's loved us, that's how we are to love one another. He taught us to love one another, and then he didn't just teach it. He showed us how. He showed us what that was like. Galatians 5.14 says the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. His law is love. And it's not that the entire law isn't important to dig into because that helps us understand how we do this. But the scripture says, you know what? If you get love right, everything else will flow out of that. If you can get loving others right, 
everything else that God requires, it's going to be there because love is the root of all of it. And so there's a million commandments that you go through and all these prophetic words and all these things. And they're very specific in there of, you know, the classics of don't lie and don't steal and don't cheat and be honest and, and raise your kids well and all of those things. The point is, if you love people well, you're going to do all that stuff anyway. All of it will flow out of that love. Get love right, first and foremost. And again, it's not that we throw out our, our Old Testament or we don't pay attention to the law because the law helps us understand the how of all of this. But his law is love. Love is the most important thing. When he was asked what's the most important thing, he says, love God and love others. That's the most important law that God has for us. And his gospel is peace, the song says. Ephesians 6.15, that's the spiritual warfare passage, the armor of God. And it talks about having your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace that the gospel brings us into peace with God. It brings us into peace with him. And it also brings us into peace with one another. And a day will come when the whole world will be at peace. All of creation will be renewed in that peace. As followers of Jesus, we want to be people of peace now. We want to be peacemakers, peace creators. With the peace that God has given to us, we want to share that peace with others along the way. Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. That we were chained once, those of us who are following after Jesus. Romans 6, 20 and 21 says, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time? From the things you are now ashamed of, these things result in death. Again, the curse that we talked about at the beginning. So everybody at one point was in this place. We were chained. We were slaves to sin. We didn't have an option. The, the revelation hadn't come. We hadn't seen Jesus. We were stuck. We were helpless. We were free from the control of God's righteousness and what is good and what is right. We were stuck there and we couldn't do anything about it. We were chained. The song says, chains shall he break. Moving through Romans to verse 22 and 23. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, slaves to sin, you're now slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we were chained and we were stuck and we were helpless and we were on our own. He came and broke those chains so that we could live for him so that we could live to righteousness. We could live in his way. We couldn't do that on our own before, but he has come and released us into that now. And our job as the church is to understand that there is a world of people still in chains. And our job is not to look down on them and judge them. Our job is to understand that, hey, they are chained. The slave is my brother. They were chained just like I was chained. And just like I didn't live for God, they're maybe not living for God now, but the, the revelation needs to come to them the chains need to be broken for them, right? It's, it's they're stuck there. They need God to reveal himself. I have yet to, to meet, I mean, it, it's, there's something interesting in our Christian culture where we're really good at getting angry at the people who are still in chains. And I've yet to meet the Christian, you know, you hear Christians, how did you come to Jesus? And it's often like, well, my parents set a good example for me or, or you know, a coworker at work was sharing their faith or there was someone in my life and, and I just wondered, how, how do I get what they have? What they have this, this way about them, this love about them. Like the stories sound like that a lot of the time. I haven't met the one yet who said, you know what? It was the self-righteousness of Christians that really got me. Some Christians freaked out about happy holidays and I went, how do I become more like them? How do I get, how do I get where they are? I can't imagine 
in the time of slavery in the States where there were these incredibly brave uh, African-Americans in chains who somehow found a way to escape, to break free, and they, they fought their way north and hid their way north, and they, they were managed to smuggle themselves across the border, and they got into Canada. Canada was a land of freedom. And I can't imagine after all of that, after they, they had this, this incredible, uh, you know, pro divine moment where they were able to break free and escape and run and had dogs chasing them and slave hunters chasing them and armed forces chasing them. And they, they went and they fought and they prayed and they fought and they got there and they found their freedom. And I can't imagine them going like, ugh, those slaves back in the South, what are they doing? Why would they do that? Like there's, they, they had this incredible thing happen and many of them said, how do we get more people free? How do we get more people free? What can we do to get more people free? And we don't always do very well at that as Christians. We get up on our high horse and we look at the world around us and there is sin everywhere and we go, ugh. How can they do that? What are those people doing? It's because they're in chains still. Don't forget that you were too. And you didn't free yourself. The Savior came and freed you. And there should be nothing but compassion for those who are still in chains. The slaves are brother. It's our sister. Some of us literally have family members and brothers and sisters who are still in chains. And our heart for them is compassion and prayer and fasting and saying, Lord, you have to do the breaking. You have to do the revealing. We have to do the sharing. We have to do the praying. We have to do the fasting. But he breaks the chains. He brings us out of that. He brings us into it. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we accomplish. And so we recognize, hey, we were there once too. Our chains have been broken. We have a mission to see more people come to freedom everywhere we go. And we understand that we didn't do any of it. It is a work of God entirely. He has saved us. We don't save ourselves. He has saved us. And in Jesus coming into this world, that is the celebration. The Savior has come. We were stuck and we were lost and we were chained and we were helpless and the Savior has arrived on this earth now to set us free. And because of that, sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. This call to worship, the response of worship. The psalmist says in Psalm 100 verse 2, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. And sometimes people say, I don't really like singing, and I haven't found a better answer than, I'm sorry about your life. We do lots of singing here, and we're going to for all eternity. <laughs> it is very biblical to sing, and not just sing, to sing with joy. And so if you're coming into worship on a Sunday morning, and you're going, are you singing with joy? Are you coming before him with gladness? He's worth more than that. And I understand there's some of us singing comes very naturally. There's some of us worship is a key place that we meet with God. Not everybody feels that way. But if we're coming into worship and it's about, I don't like this song, or I'm not in a mood, or I, I don't like this particular worship team, or, or I wish we did more of these types of songs or more of that types of songs, we have completely missed the point of worship because worship is supposed to be all about him and we are making it all about us. My preferences, my mood, what I want to see happen, what I think worship should be, I don't like this song. I don't like that song. I've said this before. It's not about you. We're not singing for you. You shouldn't like every song. If you like every single song, someone else doesn't because our musical tastes and our worship preferences are all very different. We all need to be coming before him joyfully. And so for some of you, I'm poking you with a stick this morning and saying, all right, what's worship look like then? 
If you're standing there like a zombie, what's the next step for you to engage a little bit more, to raise your voice a little bit more, to bring a little bit more of your heart to it, to bring a little bit more of your gratitude to it? Because anytime I start going, I don't like, like, I don't like all the worship songs we do. It's just, there's preferences. And, and so anytime we start thinking that way of, or, or even just, I'm not in the mood today. Oh, I'm tired. Well, shake off your tired and get joyful because your chains have been broken at a great cost. And he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of sweet hymns of joy. He's worthy of a response in that way. He's worthy of it. And we say this often here that our worship is not about how I'm feeling today. It's not about whether I like the song or not. A mature Christian should be able to worship to absolutely anything, no matter what, because you understand he's worthy of the worship no matter what's going on. He's worthy of the worship no matter what mood I'm in. He's worthy of the worship no matter how bad a sleep I had last night. He's worthy of the worship no matter what I've got coming up today. I used to lead worship a lot more. I don't do it ever really anymore because we have a great team of people who do it here. But the guy who mentored me in worship once said to me, December is one of the hardest times of the year to lead worship. And I found that to be true, very true. And as a younger man thinking, well, that's crazy, right? Christmas, that should be one of the easiest times. We should all be, like, that's one of the most exciting times that we celebrate. And he said, yeah, but it's, you know, people are busy and they're stressed out and, and the bills are piling up and the year end is coming. And often on a Sunday, they've got a family gathering later or they got to go shopping after this or, or they're thinking of all the things that have to happen because the season's so busy. We're incredibly distracted in December. Like, we have to choose to, to come in with a joyful heart. We have to choose to come in. And, and lift up our voices. We have to choose to say, it's not about me this morning. He is the one who is worthy of the worship. It's choices that we have to make. So Christ is the Lord, best part of the song. And just even musically, it just swells to this great crescendo. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. And that really is the song of the angels that we looked at last week in Luke chapter 2 in the King James Version. They say to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. They show up and they are saying Christ is the Lord. That is what the angel voices are declaring. Christ is the Lord. And not everybody believes that. And not everybody around us in our families and in our schools and in our workplaces maybe believe that. In my workplace, everybody believes that. But in yours, maybe not so much. But that is part of our job as the church. We are the ones who proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Our faith is that Jesus is Lord. Our lives have been changed because Jesus is Lord. We proclaim Christ is Lord. And when we come together on a Sunday, this is where gathering together is so important. We proclaim that over each other. And we build our faith together. Because there are some days that that's really easy to believe that Christ is Lord. There are some days maybe that it's harder. But as we come together, we join our faith together. As we join our voices together. And we say Christ is the Lord, we declare it over one another. And we declare it over our families. And we declare it in our workplaces. And we declare it at school. People should know in your life that you're a Christian. They should know that. It should be part of what you talk about because we talk about the things that are important to us. And we'll go on and on about our kids and about our jobs and our hobbies and hockey and all of these things. If Jesus is important to you, that should just naturally be part of the conversation. People should know that Christ is Lord in your life. That should be part of what you proclaim. And we also proclaim that out into the spiritual realm. That's one of my favorite things to do. 
That where there is an enemy who is against us, where there are dark forces against us, Ephesians says that it's through the church that God is declaring his manifold wisdom to the powers and principalities. It is through us that he is making his glory clear to the powers of hell. And as we declare Christ as Lord, we're just, hell knows that already, but we want them to know that we know that. We want them to know that we've been transformed, that we believe it. And so we proclaim that Christ is the Lord. We proclaim his power. We proclaim his glory. We proclaim his greatness. We proclaim his majesty. That is our job as the church. Jesus said, let your light shine. That's one of the ways that we let our light shine. It is Christ's light in us and through us. And so we are actually going to sing this song again, now that you've had some unpacking of it, now that we're going to come in knowing a little more, coming in with joyful hearts, with joyful song. Um, as this is all coming together, this hymn, again, one of my favorites. Uh, I love the lyrics of it. I love the poetry of it. I love the theology of it. That there was a holy night. There was a night that was like no other night. There was a night that was completely set apart and different because a holy God sent his holy son to come as a holy child on a holy mission to redeem a very unholy world, but to raise up for himself a holy people and to call a people back to himself. Uh, it's worth worshiping just for that, just for that. And so I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, please, as we sing this song again, as you raise your voices in worship. Thank you. 